Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin, coming to you today with a special episode. I do this every year in honor of my dad's birthday. I don't know when we started. Maybe he was turning 75, let's say. I don't know. But this year he turns 80, and I interview him every year for his birthday. Normally, I'm in the same room with him. I get to be with him to celebrate his birthday. Every August, I go home to Wisconsin from New York, where I usually live, and we have a conversation. But this year, the stars did not align. I wasn't able to go be with him in person. So we did this conversation remotely earlier today for his birthday. I wanted to do something special and unusual for him. And so we did a kind of a retrospective interview about his life, but I surprised him with some interviews and conversations with all kinds of people who have known him over the years. And um, so what you're going to hear now is that event that uh, we just uh, basically finished doing a little while ago. I don't want to preface it too much because it's a long one and it's a really special one. You know, it may be a little specific for some. And if so, I understand and I hope to find you back here on our next episode because I've got a lot of great ones uh, lined up and coming up soon. But for now... I'd like to welcome you into a rather intimate conversation, portrait of a man's career. This is me and my dad, Ben Sidron, celebrating his 80th birthday. But before we get started, a couple of little uh, items of news. Uh, number one, of course, third-story.com is the place where you can visit the entire archive, hear all of the previous conversations, not only the birthday episodes with my dad, but also conversations with many of the people who contributed to this episode today. That's third-story.com. Patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is where you can go to throw a few shekels in the bucket if you want to help support this project. And of course, the Third Story podcast is made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. Also, my dad and I are going to be on the road at the end of August and early September. Visit bensidron.com to find out more about his live dates. And as if that weren't enough, one more special item of news, the official Ben Sidron songbook, The Songs of Ben Sidron, 1970 to 2020. It's volume one, because who knows, maybe there'll be another volume in the future. That is now available for sale. You can buy it on Amazon or directly from Ben Sidron on Bandcamp. Find out more at bensidron.com. Here's my birthday episode with Ben Sidron. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So let's see. Boy, your studio looks nice today. I put all the nice things behind me. Oh, do you? So like just out of the frame, it's it's a disaster? Chaos. Chaos. But, you know, because nobody sees outside. Nobody sees anything anymore. No, nobody sees. Yes, we, we can get into that as if you like, because I have some thoughts on that. On now, that. you can't be moving things on the desk. I can't be moving things on the desk. Are no, you... because the microphone is over there. I'll move this stuff over here. Yeah. Okay. How do you feel? Let's start there. I mean, you don't have to get into all of the specifics but how do you feel about turning 80 is this a thing that you're thinking about does it feel like a major event i can't stop thinking about it i've never had this experience before uh with a birthday or even with a graduation experience or anything like that it's really 80 is this uh profound experience uh, i i don't feel 80 it's not feeling 80 i don't feel any different than i felt at uh 75 but i'm thinking a lot about it so how do i feel i feel good i feel okay but it's strange because i've never had this experience before the last few times i've called you you've told me that you are working on perfecting the one one man hang the solo hang 
<laughs> yes. Well, this is the theory, see. So I had this theory based on my whole projection of space and time as uh, taught to me by the jazz life, the jazz experience, that it's all about the hang. The jazz is really about the hang. And by that, I mean, it's social music. And, you know, traditionally, people were very uh, deeply involved with hanging out with one another. And that's where the music came from. Now, obviously, not so much. The hang is more difficult to commence. And it seems to me like we're in a very interesting period. The panic is on. Mm -hmm. The panic didn't used to be on. I mean, you can go back to the 50s when, you know, pop music was how much is the doggy in the window, but you still had Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. See, and that kind of put a Band-Aid on the panic. And plus, it wasn't that expensive to hang. You could hang for a buck fifty. Now the panic is on. You know, poor folks panic, middle class, every, everybody's panicked. Billionaires are panicked. They're panicked. Everybody's panicked. And obviously for good reason. I don't have to tell you the reasons. But. Well, yeah. There, I mean, there is that, right? There is also the sense that you were hanging. You have hung. You have been hanging. Yes. You have been doing the hanging. Yes. Um, <laughs> during a period when there was a lot of fun to be had, you know, and there was a lot of great stuff going on. Humor was really important. I mean, that's the main thing that I think separates us from them. Uh, those guys really had a good time. In spite of, you know, it's the Johnny Griffin thing, in spite of conditions. That was the the definition of the hang. Yeah. Jazz is music made by and for people who have chosen to feel good in spite of conditions. So uh, the conditions were serious. I mean, it was like the nuclear thing. People were afraid of being blown up in an atom bomb, but still... It's different, man. The world's on fire. There's not enough water. The Supreme Court is corrupt and kids have automatic weapons. So the panic is everywhere. Everybody's got this panic. And so it's ruined the hang. That's why you are working on the one man hang, last man standing hang. Last man standing hang. That's right. So uh, traditionally, uh, the hang required uh, a rhythm section, mm -hmm. at least. A few guys who could agree on where the one was. Yeah. Or argue about it. Or argue about it, but interact on the, on the question. Now, uh, that social structure is just gone. It's been hollowed out. You know, I really, uh, I don't feel it. It used to be all about humor. Now, with the panic being on, as, as I've said, it's, it's about monetization. It's about all these other things. But the core society where people identify with each other as let's just say outsiders, because yeah. that's the best hang. The best hang is when you get a bunch of freaks together who, who don't have a place in the above world, they can hang. There's nothing wrong with a little alienation. You get to get, got to get some people who are alienated and who have this kind of tr living in the trenches yeah. humor. That's the jazz hang or was. I'm so glad that this is what we're talking about. I also wonder before i move forward here if you believe that our memories are to be trusted as we live our lives and look back on where we've been are we really able to trust what we think we remember i mean maybe it doesn't matter because of course every time you remember something you're kind of writing over it or adding to it collaborating with your own memories but do you think it's possible to truly remember and in fact i guess as a second question 
I mean, do you even feel like the same guy that you are remembering that you were before? Or does that feel like a different person? Well, see, this gets into the concept of different kinds of memory. Mm. There's sequential memory, which is, yes, I went to the store. I bought a package of chewing gum. I came home. I opened the package. I had a piece of gum. Did that happen? Well, we can argue about that or not. And then there's emotional memory. What did it feel like to go to the store and buy the pack of gum? And what did it feel like to choose that gum? And what did it feel like? So I think the answer to to that question is uh, sequential memory is always a a suspect. There's no question. We we uh, reinterpret it every time we open it up. But the emotional memory, I think, determines who we are because Every step along the way, that feeling affects all the hormonal soup that's running through our bodies, and it really builds us as as creatures. It is who we are. So we are. That's as I used to say that about jazz musicians. They are the takeaway. It's not the music that's the takeaway. The musicians are themselves the piece of work. Uh, well, we always say that you transform yourself by playing the music. And so if you're transforming yourself by playing the music, then the self, the person is the work of art. It's the work of art. And there's a parallel thing going on. When you talk about memory, you're really talking about time and, and how time moves. And as we know, time exists in people, not outside of people. Time exists in our experience of time. Yeah. Or as I like to say, we don't move through time. Time moves through us. And as you get older, things really speed up. Yeah. You know, I have this little thing where I put my vitamins in for each day and I'm filling that all the time. Yeah. I can't, what, what, I just filled this yesterday and I'm filling this. You know, what, what, but it what, wasn't what, yesterday. It was a week ago. It was the week ago. The reason for that, they theorize, is that because as you get older, a week is a much smaller percentage of your life than it was when you were six years old. When you're six years old, one week was a big chunk of your life. So, of course, it took longer. So, when we talk about memory, we're also talking about, well, you asked the question, do you even feel like the same person? We're really trying to remember ourselves yes. throughout this whole thing. Yes, that's right. But I'd like to try. I'd like, for the purposes of what we're doing here today, I'd like you to try. So, for starters, you leave your hometown of Racine, Wisconsin, and you arrive in Madison to go to the University of Wisconsin in what year? Uh, 1961, I think, if I remember correctly. And you're playing music, and from day one, you're playing music, and you're also, you got interested in writing when you were there, right? You got to college and you were writing. Yes. The student newspaper at the time was, uh, the editor was Jeff Greenfield, uh, who has gone on to become quite a a figure in uh, politics and and writing and he gave me a jazz column to write every week. So the first thing I did is I was writing about jazz in 1961. You know, there weren't a lot of people writing about jazz, so that was fun. And uh, I was, uh, you know, also deep into writing essays, like in my comp lit course, if I got a hold of a book that I really dug, I would launch off on some kind of a screed about what I thought the book was about. But I loved writing. The physical act of writing, I really loved. I talked to Jeff about his memory of you at that time. My memory about Ben back then, uh, other than that he was playing jazz on the Rathskiller every whatever it was Friday, was the times that I met him was that he has an extraordinary personal energy 
without ever trying. There's something about Ben that, that is so centered and just solid, whether he's at the piano singing and talking to us, or whether it's just conversation with him. This is a guy who combines enormous creativity with a really solid sense of reality that I really admire. I got to know Ben actually in my repeated visits to Madison after I left. What he projects in his performing is to me a really key sense of who he is. The conversations he has as he takes you into the music and the kind of music that he plays. This is a guy who both loves the music he's playing, but also has the intellectual strength to do something very different with it. Whoa. I'm gobsmacked a bit, I must say. Well, I wanted to put that out there now because there's going to be more where that came from. You couldn't have set up our journey any better than you did. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I see where we are now. Okay. Here we go. Okay. You're writing for Jeff. He's your editor at the Daily Cardinal. And you were writing jazz reviews to start. Yeah. One particular review you wrote, I think, really ultimately changed what would follow. You told me the story many times when I was young. You wrote about it in your book. And it's a review of a John Coltrane record. Yes, the ballads record. So I was working at the record store at the time. And uh, so I had access to all the records as they came out. And of course, this was 61, 62, 63, whatever, when all these unbelievable records were coming out. And Train at one point made a record, uh, a ballads record. And I didn't honor it in my review. Let me put it that way. I was young, I was trying to fill up 750 words, and it's much easier to be snarky than it is to be sincere. Then, subsequently, weeks or months later, I don't know how much longer it was, I was listening to records in my apartment, and I had put this record on, and I was in tears. I, I was literally in tears, and it turned out to be the same record that I had not reviewed positively. And I felt positively awful. I felt like I was supercilious, jejun, you can pick a word. It was not a good feeling. And I realized then that if you can't say something nice about music, you let it go, man. Don't say anything. Or if you want to comment on a piece of music, come up with another piece of music that's a comment. But that really changed how I looked at criticism and actually what being smart meant. Mm. I think up to that point, I thought being smart meant always having something clever to say. And that really got to me that, you know, being that kind of smart isn't worth much. Yeah. Well, this helps to explain why you've been so open to so many different kinds of things that were going on and able to appreciate and value all different tendencies, cultural tendencies. On the one hand, you were kind of a serious intellectual and you were interested in being a writer and you were a jazz head. And on the other hand, when you came into contact with a crew of people who were making three chord rock and roll music, you appreciated and understood that that was also important. Mm. I mean, you told me that part of the reason playing rock and roll with Steve Miller and Boz Skaggs in that college rock band 
was appealing to you is because you could make more money playing a rock gig than you could playing a jazz gig. But on the other hand, I think there was something in you that recognized that it was important or that it was valuable or that it was meaningful, that it was something and that it was smart. In its way, rock and roll had an aspect of it that was smart, maybe not smart in the way that uh, reading Wittgenstein was smart, but smart nonetheless. And while playing with Steve and Boz was rubbing off on you and having its influence on you, you were also having a kind of quiet influence on them. I talked to Boz Skaggs about what kind of influence you had on him. Ben and I certainly certainly have a, a lot in common in, in our musical. Uh, well, he turned he turned me on to a lot of stuff, too. He played me my first Horace Silver records because he knew that I was going to connect with Horace Silver. And sure enough, that opened a, it. He opened a lot of doors for me at, at a time in my life. It was, I was all ears, and uh, Ben was there with the songbook. Yeah. Well, that's true, man. Uh, that goes back to the idea of the hang. You know, the hang means you're sharing the music that means the most to you with the people who mean the most to you because you want them to experience it, but you also want them to experience you. And so, that's part of how we told each other who we are. I mean, uh, interesting. I remember also, you know, Boz was strictly a three chord guy then. I mean, now when you listen to his music, it's so sophisticated. I mean, his harmonic concept is wonderful. And I, I remember showing him some chords, some voicings, some stuff, just jazz blues type of things. And as he said, he was all ears, man. Boz was all ears. Boz still to this day is a seeker and a searcher and somebody who is on the path of righteous music. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't predict how anybody's going to go down the road 50, 60 years later. And I must say, I'm, I'm very moved by who Boz has turned out to be. I, I think, you know, listening to Jeff and Boz, it's, it's like a, a faceted stone that's been polished i mean their being is 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 more focused now yes. back then we were all scattered we were young we were kids yeah you were kids but you're doing incredible things i mean when i think about like how you and boz and the miller band end up all over the world in la and london and san francisco hanging with all these crazy characters you know and i look back on it you're 20 years old 22 years old i mean you're just total kids and you were bumping up against other kids you know like you know you had told me for years about the experience of meeting jan winner right when he started rolling stone and right. the idea that maybe you were going to be a part of that experience right. for a minute right so I asked Jan what he remembered about that. <laughs> my memories really are that Judy and my wife, Jane, hit it off really well. And they were always running around town doing little things that you do when you're 20 years old. And Ben and I were the kind of resident serious people. I mean, he was educated. Yeah, I think he had or he was going for a doctorate or whatever. And I was also, even though dropout, an, an intellectual type person like your dad. So I kind of, on that basis, we kind of, formed a friendship along with the wives and, and we got along great. Ben even at some point wrote a couple of things for Rolling Stone. I once did a demo with an artist named Sylvester. I saw the singer Sylvester, I thought was really good. And I just finished doing Boz's record. So I thought, well, I'm going to be a record producer or something like that. 
I put together a band and Ben was in it. I was late, came from the office. I realized I just wasn't going to have time to do this by the end of the session. You know, Ben was the professional, you know, it was more, he was the most grown up person in the room. Let's put it that way. We were kids. We were young. I mean, we think of ourselves still as being young in heart and spirit and thought. And I'm sure this is true with your dad. You know, we haven't changed our values, our thinking, our approach to life. Certainly physically we've changed, but those were other days when youth had all the energy and no perspective or something. I mean, you know, there's a chemical basis to it all. I mean, we're all loaded with still with hormones and energy and all the things that go on with that and in a fervor. And a fever, it's a youthful fever, is what Fitzgerald said, all youth is a form of chemical madness. Uh, it's true, it is chemical madness. So you don't know about it when you're doing it. You don't think those ways. You don't think in those terms. Now we can look back on it with real satisfaction and pride and cherish our memories of it. Well, Leo, I'm not going to let this opportunity go to plug my book called Like a Rolling Stone, published last year by Little Brown. still available, now released in paperback and at airports everywhere. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I love what he said about being in a fever. Yeah. That's really, when I hear these voices now, there's no more fever. Mm -hmm. These these are people who have uh, survived the fever. You know, the fever took a lot of people out. But these are people who survived and were able to grow into who they were determined to become one way or the other. Yeah. Nobody else knew how to, how to package what we were in a fever about. Mm. I mean, we're just in a fever and he was able to step back and look at it and see that there was a format that uh, could be turned out every week. And, and I mean, Jan is legendary, man, Um, as somebody who came out of that culture, saw it, and made uh, made history with it. What do you remember about your conversations with him about what you would do differently or what you would do if you were involved? Well, the main the main thing was when he was talking to me about joining Rolling Stone's staff. Uh, it happened after he, he was uh, writing an, an an advertisement kind of a thing for Pete Townsend and the Who. And what one of the suggestions I had was, why don't you refer to him as Mr. Townsend? It, it would kind of show respect. And he liked that. That was, yeah. And he said, well, oh, yeah. So, so uh, let me ask you, would you be interested in, in doing the review section? Would you be interested in handling the review section? And of course, I had had that experience with the Coltrane record. And I said, well, I'd probably end all the reviews. I'd stop writing reviews entirely and, you know, just talk about the good stuff. And uh, that was kind of the end of the discussion. I mean, on the one hand, I I still wanted to go back to do my PhD work. But on the other hand, I mean, the road for it, the reviews turned out to be one of the big features of Rolling Stone. People relied on them and looked at them and all the musicians needed them. And it was a whole lever uh, that was used constantly. But I, in my naivete, I have to say, see, this goes back to a conversation. I I once had a conversation with Glenn Johns about commercial music. This was, I was in England. We were making a record uh, with Steve Miller and 
I must have said something about doing something for good reasons rather than commercial reasons. That's where I probably was coming from. And Glenn really took offense. You know, you see, what's wrong with with being commercial? What's wrong with with being successful? I think he might have even said, you Americans. Yeah, right. (laughs) Something like that. And that really stuck with me because in England, they hadn't gotten so hung up on this idea of, I think it came out of the beatnik culture. I think it was a Kerouacian thing. Right. You you didn't collaborate with the man and there was something righteous about being down on your luck (laughs) of the people that way. But they certainly didn't have it in England. And it took me a while to come to terms with that concept. I mean, today I'm still not 100% good with commercialism. I think commercialism really can water down the work. Well, you might be unresolved about commercialism, but you have maintained a friendship with Glyn Johns, and we spoke about it yesterday. Oh, of course. I remember meeting him the first time was on a Steve Miller album in San Francisco, uh, where Steve brought him in, and he played brilliantly and was so easy to work with. It was a sort of natural progression. Then he came to England to go to university in Brighton in Sussex which was not, uh, not terribly far from where I used to live. And we kept in contact as friends. And what, the one thing about the sessions in San Francisco, I'm pretty sure they were the sessions that your mum and dad got married on. Uh, I was staying in a hotel, and because I had the space, I threw the wedding reception for your dad and your mum. And I think Steve got married at the same time. It was a joint double wedding. Extremely generous of me, I thought. <laughs> Obviously, that also marked how close we'd become as friends by that time. And of course, and your mum was just completely gorgeous. That much I remember very clearly. Just the easiest person, along with your dad, who's a, a rare breed as a musician because he's so bright. <laughs> very interested and interesting. A really unusual guy and always wonderful to be in his company. Great musician. I think I was responsible for getting him his first record deal with Capitol Records. I pitched it to whoever was head of A&R then, and he got it, which I was very happy about, and I think he probably was too, I don't know. I rented a house in the valley. I know that my son Ethan was three months old or something like that, so it's 50, Ethan just had his birthday, so it's 54 years ago. And Ben asked if he and Judy could share the house with me because they wanted a house in LA. We shared a house, yeah. Now that's how much I thought of the pair, obviously. Well, that is interesting. I mean, talk about memory. So what I remember is I met Glenn in London at Olympic Studios in 1967 and had that conversation, actually, about commercial music in 67. And Judy and I got married in 69 in San Francisco. And that is exactly right. We had a double wedding with Steve Miller and his then 16-year-old bride. And we did share a house in L.A. in 71, I think it was. So here's a classic example of time being compressed and memory being accurate in terms of emotional content. There it is, because what he said is absolutely correct. It's just the timeline that I experienced is not the timeline he experienced. But Glenn was always a guiding light, man. He was talk about the adult in the room. Yeah. I think he was born. Yeah, he was born an adult. He was always confident 
in himself and his taste. And that was a very important lesson to see somebody, you know, he, he, he was something of a musician himself, but he never, he never had a, a qualms about saying what he felt musically, even though he was not an accomplished musician. And you can see in the uh, Peter Jackson documentary on the Beatles, there's a scene with Glenn sitting next to McCartney as McCartney's writing a song. I forget what song it was, but one of the great McCartney songs. And Glenn is commenting on where the bridge should go or something. I thought, oh my God, you know, that's just who Glenn is. He, he has, he can, he's the adult in any room, man. And very impressive. Glenn got you your first deal. You've told the story in your book. You told it, uh, this <laughs> yes. great lunch that you went to where you got signed, Artie Mogul signed you uh, on his way out the door. Yes. And you made a record on Capitol. You moved from LA back to Madison. And, you know, you set up your life in Madison. But a year or so later, you don't have a deal at Capitol anymore. The record had come and gone, and you don't really know what's going to happen. And the phone rings in the middle of the night. And it's Bob Krasnow. Bob Krasnow, a legendary record man with a new label that he was running with his friend Tommy LaPuma. Bob Krasnow was at Michael Kaskuna's house. Michael Kaskuna was a DJ in New York at the time, had my Capitol record, had played it for him. Krasnow, who had a full head of steam, said, Ben, I've been all over the world looking for somebody to sign, and I want to sign you. What do I have to do to sign you? And uh, I don't know. In, in, in my recollection, I hope I said, call me tomorrow, but yeah. I'm sure I didn't. Yeah. I, I'm sure I, I said, uh, who? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What I always loved about that is the idea that you had happened, that you had started to resonate on some level, you know, and that just by making the, this quirky record that you made at Capitol that was kind of at the time a hybrid jazz rock record, whatever, that the people that were there to receive it would receive it. And I always heard that Kraz and Kaskuna were together that night. So I asked Kaskuna when he first learned about you and what that experience was like. I was on WPLJ, and Ann Sternberg was our music director. And she and I went up to the Beacon for some show or something. And Ben was there, and she knew Ben. And she said, oh, you got to meet this guy. He's right in sync with everything you do and think. So that's how Ben and I met. And um, we stayed in touch. I think he mentioned early on that Sonny Clark was uh, his favorite pianist. And at that point, I knew I had a comrade for life. And, um, you know, then we just kept bumping into each other, working together on different kinds of projects and, and spent a life on and off together. Leo, you have totally knocked me out. I'm sorry. I just have to say it. This is, you know, there used to be a show on television called This Is Your Life. I know. Bob Edwards. I know. <laughs> uh, but it was nowhere near as hip as what you put together. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So Bob Krasnow signed you to this label, Blue Thumb. And so even though you were living in Madison, you know, you had this kind of foothold on the West Coast. Blue Thumb was in L.A., right? So you were going out to L.A. You were making records in the Midwest. You were making a lot of records and you made a record in Madison. You made a record in Chicago, but you were also out in L.A. And that opened up some nice relationships. I mean, you started to meet people that would accompany you through the journey. 
Do you have any memories of being invited into sessions to play on somebody else's records? The day I met Tommy LaPuma at the Blue Thumb office, he was producing Phil Upchurch. And Phil Upchurch being this brilliant, legendary Chicago guitar player, bass player, he played bass with Jimmy Reed. Imagine. Played bass with, I mean, with the Staples singers when they were doing pure gospel. Tommy invited me to this to the session, and I think it might have been the first time I ever hung with Tommy. I mean, Tommy Lupuma, man, was so easy to be with. So I just fell in with him and went along to the studio, and I wound up sitting at the B3 organ recording this fantastic tune that Arthur Adams wrote and playing with Phil Upchurch. It was like, uh, and, and the rhythm section, I mean, I think it was Harvey Mason. I mean, it was all these monster LA cats. And here I come tooling in from Madison, Wisconsin, just to say, hi, I don't know what to say. I, I'm, I'm running out of. <laughs> no, you're doing great, man. Thank you. Just stay with me. Stay on this ride with me, man. Stay there. <laughs> stay there. You know, this is an example of a memories aligning nicely, because this is what Upchurch remembers about it. I remember Tommy LaPuma saying, you got to check out Ben Sidron. He needs to be on this record, a record that uh, Tommy was producing on me. And that's how he got started. And we've been hanging out pretty tough musically and friend-wise, brothers in love ever since. When I heard Phil, he called me so beautifully the other night. And I heard his voice. I asked him, are you still playing? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, I always told myself that when it was diminishing below a certain level, I, I'd put the guitar down and I can't play like I used to. So I'm, I'm not doing it anymore. Oh, my goodness. Well, that is one courageous mofo, man. I never would have thought that Phil would stop playing. He was always, you know, the leader of the pack when it came to grooving. You know, he was one of the first cats who, I mean, now you and, and a bunch of people can cut a demo by yourself. But back when Phil was doing it 50 years ago, nobody else was doing it. And his demos were just spectacular. But, you know, it goes back to the thing that we started saying, that it's the person that is the work of art. <laughs> yes. Boy, that is so on time, man. That is so on time. That's exactly right. He is. He made a, a work of art named Phil Upchurch. He did, he, he did that. Well, I'm constantly amazed having lived in New York, and I've said this to you over the years, that anybody chose to fly you anywhere because the coasts are so provincial in their way. And if you're not here, then you ain't anywhere. And, you know, there were all these projects that came to you over the years that took you into all these scenes. I mean, not just into New York and into L.A., but incredibly, you found yourself producing records for other people, you know, in England and and in Boston, you know, you spent this time yeah. doing the Paul Pina record in Boston. And Tony Williams. And Tony Williams also. And that album that you produced for Paul Pina in the early 70s has kind of its own legend around it now. Because although you made it in like 72, it didn't come out until 30 years later, until 2003. And it became kind of a phenomenon when it came out, in part because here was this undiscovered, unheard kind of masterpiece that had been like a time capsule waiting to be uncovered. On that album is the original recording of Paul's song, Jet Airliner, that was later recorded by Steve Miller. Steve had the hit with it. It became part of the sort of 
rock and roll canon. Most people didn't realize that that wasn't Steve's song. It was a song written by Paul Pina. But the recording that Steve heard that led him to want to record the song in the first place was on the album that you made that remained unreleased for many years. I asked Gunther Weil, who was responsible for bringing you in on that project, to tell me about his memories of those sessions. So I had produced Paul Pina's first album for Columbia, and then we had struck a deal with Albert Grossman. He had fallen in love with Paul. He saw Paul as a as a kind of Stevie Wonder, you know, kind of potential talent. You know, and he was representing Dylan and Janis Joplin and the band and, and uh, you know, on and on and on. So we thought we were in good hands. So I asked Ben if he'd be interested in producing the album because I, I knew I was I was beyond my pay grade at that point. And uh, he agreed. And then uh, one thing led to another. And uh, the album was, I think, produced in 19... 19- 72. I remember some wonderful experiences of being on the date, you know, and watching things unroll in real time. I remember one of the tunes, it was an improv. Paul was just starting to, you know, kind of play with some Hendrix licks and uh, then ran over and turned on the recording machine, the old Ampex, you know, the two-inch Ampex, and, and captured it. And, uh, and then we worked with that, basically, you know, so... That was a completely improvised first take, only take, if you will, you know. And then just being, you know, just being part of that session, the music was so extraordinary. The relationships were so powerful. I remember we had the persuasions there on the date. Jerry Garcia playing uh, steel guitar, actually, on the date, you know. So, so, and then, you know, the history where where basically uh, Albert basically, you know, wanted to... uh, take the whole thing over. The whole thing was kind of set up as a, as a kind of uh, bait and switch operation by him. Dealing with his ego was very difficult. And I remember, I think Ben and I uh, actually, uh, and Paul met with Grossman in Bearsville, in Woods, outside of Woodstock. And uh, we were also frustrated by, all of us frustrated, particularly Paul, you know. Of course, what I'm missing here is the, is the hit jet airliner that, you know, and I think Ben was responsible for bringing that to Steve Miller's attention. Uh, ben and Gary Malabar, who I think had been working with Steve also, Ben and, and, and Gary brought, uh, one or both of them brought the uh, cassette of the album to, to Miller, and he seized on Jet Airliner, and then one thing led to another, and I had to kind of negotiate publishing rights with, with Miller, but it all worked out, basically, you know. So Paul was actually given a lifeline of revenue which kept him going for years and years. Of course, you know, that tune was was a platinum song, basically. It's part of the American rock and roll songbook. Everybody knows it. Uh, I hold him very much in my heart as a dear friend and, and colleague and, and just a wonderful fellow traveler. That's true. There was a tune that came out of me running over and, and hitting record while the cats were just out in the room fooling around. What I love about that is that one of your sort of catchphrases, mantras, whatever, philosophies, in fact, over time, and in talking about the relationship between technology and music in the 20th century, is the difference between capturing music and manufacturing music. And Gunther uses the the expression, he captured it. He ran over to the machine to capture it. And I thought that really tracks with everything that you have come to care about when it comes to making records, that we're going to capture this now. I never thought of that, but that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That was a captured moment. My response was unconscious and instantaneous. I mean, I heard what was going on in the studio, and I just threw myself at the machine and hit the red button. 
Those sessions were like that, actually. Paul Pino was yeah. was a phenomenon, and everybody around him felt it. Yeah. Steve Miller heard the cassette because the next thing I produced was this uh, record for Steve called Journey from Eden. And I definitely showed up in L.A. We did it at Capitol, I guess, with the cassette of Paul Pino's record. At that time, thinking that it was going to come out, I mean, we thought this record was so good that it was going to make Paul. And we were so proud of it. Yeah, of course. And we didn't know it was going to be 28 years before it was released. And I'm sure I played it for Steve with that sense of dig this. Dig me now. Dig me now. Yeah. You dug me then. Yeah. Dig me now. And instead, he just and said, I'll take that. I'll, I, he just bought I'll, it. I'll have yeah. that. Well, in fact, you know, he cut Jet Airliner almost exactly the way Paul did, except he changed some of the words. Like Paul said, um, sitting in this jet airliner, just about to go insane, and I'm thinking about jumping out the door. And Steve changed it to, and I'm thinking about my home. And he changed a bunch of other parts of the song, so it became a little more user-friendly and not as dark, because Paul Pina was one dark cat, man. And Gunther, aside from being involved in the record, you know, he was, um, his advisor at Harvard was Tim Leary, and he was an editor in a book called uh, The Psychedelic Reader with Tim Leary. He was there, I think, when Tim Leary gave Charlie Mingus LSD or something. He, he, he was, told uh, me that story this morning. He did. That's funny. Gunther was a fellow traveler, man. And that's what he called you. That's what I love, that he closed his memory of you by saying he's just a great fellow traveler. That's what these people are, man. These are a bunch of travelers bumping into each other on the road you know that's how that's what i've been feeling talking to all these people from your life is that they're, they're travelers you know th this is interesting when i talked to mark Marin years ago the, the first time halfway through the conversation he said to me oh i get it you just wanted to be a guy yeah i said yeah mark that's what it was yeah i didn't care the famous thing didn't enter into it this that and then i just wanted to be a guy yeah. And what, what it means to be a guy incorporates so much, you know, being yeah. upright, being honest, being committed, being dedicated, being a hipster, being part of the hang, all that stuff yeah. Yeah. is being a guy. But, you, yeah. you know, you might not have been focused on fame, but, you know, clearly after a series of ill-fated deals, I could see how a person in your situation would say, I got to get some better representation here. You know, I think you, you know, you had a series of lawyers that you were kind of moving through and you needed somebody who was going to really be your bulldog. And so I spoke to your longtime attorney, Emily Simon, about working with you. Okay, you're not recording me, are you? Yes. Yes? Yes. Really? Why would you record me? Lawyers don't go on podcasts. What would you ask me? I would ask you your impression of working with Ben what made him a unique client, and in particular, any reflections that you have on him in terms of how he set up his career, what you thought about him making his career from Madison, all those things. No. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> she refused to answer the question, Ben. That's your attorney. She won't even admit that she ever worked for you. That's a good attorney. <laughs> That's what you needed is an attorney like that. 
<laughs> well, I will say that when she was doing the negotiation with uh, Tommy LaPuma when I was signing to Horizon Records, Tommy called me up after talking to her and said, your attorney just rode in on a horse <laughs> with a bandana around her mouth and called that a negotiation. Yeah, yeah. I said, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you, Tommy. Well, that is funny. That is funny. So she wouldn't say anything. Won't talk Nothing. about it. Not on the record. Nope. Not going to do it. I, I like that. I respect her. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. You know, there's it's so there's so many aspects of it, and there's so many areas that we can go into. But I think that you started to really embrace not being in New York and not being in L.A. and embraced the Midwestern thing and found ways to recognize talent and value that was close by. You made a lot of records at Paragon in Chicago. And then at some point, rather than going south, you decided that you would take that four and a half, five hour drive north on the regular. I'm talking about, of course, the Minneapolis scene that you fell into in the 80s. Yeah, fantastic scene. You know, the the scene in London in the late 60s was a spectacular scene at Olympic Studios with Glenn. And the scene in L.A., with Tommy and Upchurch and those cats, a fantastic scene. But the scene in Minneapolis was right up there with those scenes. It was so deep and so profound. What made it uh, what it was, was it's kind of isolated up there. You know, you're up there in the Northwoods. There is a thriving black community with great musicians. Obviously, everybody knows. And a long, deep tradition of white jazz musicians, mm -hmm. black jazz musicians. I mean, great music community. The community's are small enough that everybody played together. Mm. And I showed up primarily because the way I met the <laughs> Minneapolis music community was through a recording engineer named Dave Rivkin, who at the time I was up there working with uh, Billy Peterson and Bob Rockwell and uh, Paul Lagos was in the studio next door doing the demos for Prince. But I had met Dave Rivkin, who Prince later named David Z. Uh, out in L.A. when Judy and I were living there and I was cutting song demos for a living. I was unknown and, and unknowable maybe, but the way I made some money was being a song demo piano player for Irving Almo. And David was also trying to write songs for Irving Almo. Anyway, those guys could do it because they had all hung together. Back then, you know, most jazz musicians really didn't play the pocket the way Clyde Stubblefield played the pocket, for example, you know, the James Brown pocket. When I got to Minneapolis, I found great beboppers who also could play that pocket. So I got to Minneapolis, I met these characters, and I say characters because aside from being really sophisticated musicians, they were like North Woods, they were outdoorsmen. They yeah. were. That's what's incredible is the music is so sophisticated. And when you just hear the voices, the Minneapolis voices, you know, and, and, the, and the, the familiarity, the comfort, but that, that sound, I mean, it's really a specific thing. That's it's home. Doctor, Dr. Ben Sidron, our best friend in the world, mentor to me and you. I can't believe you're turning 80, man. This is not correct. How did we get this old? I know how we got the, this old. We're still it's, doing the same thing. We want to just say how much we love you, man, and happy birthday to you. And the philosophies you've taught us has been immense. And we got one that we remember that we live by, which is 
what you stumble on is always better than what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> we live by those words, Doc. Happy birthday, brother. Happy birthday to you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, dear Benny. Happy birthday to you. Love you. That, of course, was Ricky and Billy Peterson of the Peterson family. Yeah, that tells you everything that you need to know. That tells you what you need to know. There they are, man. They're the cats. Yeah, we've had just amazing times, as you well know, because you grew up at the time when I was hanging with these guys, and they had a, a, a strong musical influence on you as well. They really did. And I start to understand as I relive this. I mean, of course, now we're essentially in an era in your life in which in the 80s where I sort of roll in. And I admit that everybody I talk to, more or less starting in this time frame, remembers me in the corner. Uh-huh. You were there. You were there. I remember. Yeah. I, that's when I met you. Oh, you were sitting there. That became part of what you were doing as you were rolling in with your kid and that there was like a real family element to what was happening, a grounded aspect to it. I think that that really struck the music community, the fact that I was traveling with you and I made it a point to travel with you simply because you were into it. I mean, if you weren't into it, you would have been off somewhere else, but you really loved the music scene. Yeah. And it turns out you also have a gift for music. But that at that point, it was, you loved the scene, you loved the characters, they loved you. Well, as you say, your willingness to bring me around with you and also to proudly set your career up from Madison, choose not to be in New York or L.A., choose to do it on your own terms, clearly had an effect on people that you came into contact with. One person who I talked to who has a vivid memory of seeing how you had set your life up and being influenced by it was our friend Peter Gilbert, who went on to be part of the team that made the movie Hoop Dreams that you did the music for. And I talked to Peter about his impressions of seeing how you had set your life up. So one of the things that Ben taught me that was really changed my life was I was living in L.A. and I came back to Chicago to do a little piece with a bunch of friends for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, like a commercial for them. And so we put together this sort of crazy little piece and I went up to Madison and I reconnected with your dad after not seeing him for a couple of years, three, four years. That's when I met you. Um, You were in the studio and watching him just do this incredibly great 30 second piece of music for this crazy sort of experimental piece that we did for the Museum of Contemporary Art. And he's in Madison. I was telling him I hate L.A. And he was basically like, you don't have to live in L.A. to do what you want to do. And it was like, bam, that was it. And I actually didn't go back to L.A. (laughs) from Chicago. I just stayed. It was sort of like you can plant your flag wherever you want and make work that brings you joy. And that really changed my life. I mean, there wouldn't have been the friendships in Chicago I have. There wouldn't have been hoop dreams. There wouldn't have been all those different kinds of things that I did if I hadn't come back here. Just to see the whole thing, you know, your mom, you, the whole scene, it just made me like, no, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. There wouldn't have been hoop dreams. That's where I think this idea of to the other guy, you're the other guy kept coming up in my mind. Like we experience our lives through our filter. That was something that happened to you. Peter came to Madison and you made the music. And in your experience of it, it was a thing that you did. In his experience of it, it's something that happened to him. Yes. And it affected him. Yes. 
to the other guy, you're the other guy. That's right. It's part of what we always say, which is all our best efforts got us right here. All, all the little decisions that we made, all the way from the beginning to now, got us here. And if any one of those little decisions had been different, we would not be here. So all our living life is a testament to the person we are. I mean, it literally is. It tells you, you look at somebody's life, it it's, tells you who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like they always say, you know, uh, character is, is action. And, you know, uh, without that, there's no story. Character is action, exactly. So the way we behave towards others, when we choose to raise our hands and speak up, when we choose to stay silent, that all contributes to our character. And it reminds me of an anecdote. Of course, you've already talked about how going all the way back to 1961 or 1962, when you wrote a bad review of a John Coltrane record, you became very sensitive to the idea of criticism. And you had to confront that when it came to your own career from time to time when you got reviewed. There's one particular story that I remember about an especially harsh review that you received and how you dealt with it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it was in the USA Today. And uh, it was written by a friend of mine, Neil Tesser, who put a list together of, I think, the five worst records of the year 1985. And my record on the cool side was one of them. Because of that review, the record label, which was Wyndham Hill at the time, stopped promoting the record, just flat out stopped. They, I think they had never had to deal with a review like that. And they didn't know what to do. And also they were a little vulnerable because Wyndham Hill as a label was really taking a lot of heat for the new age stuff that they were putting out. And they were very sensitive to negative reviews. And I think that you're absolutely right. This is an example of that Coltrane review coming home, but it's also something that people in the media are not that aware of. Neil at the time said, oh, hey, man, you know, it was just a review. And I said, yeah, but, you know, it really had an effect on me. And I, I, not because you said what you felt, I'm glad you said what you felt, but you're saying it had a, had a, effect on my career, I I think that meant something to Neil as well as, as to me. I know it did. And it's a great example of how character is action and how a friendship actually was kind of built out of that experience. As a journalist, my respect for Ben is off the charts. I mean, a man of great wisdom. You know, I think Ben is a sage. I love this guy if he was my brother, not least because he set me straight years ago when I wrote something unnecessarily critical of one of his records. And he called me up and said, what are you doing? And I looked at it and said, there's real people behind this. I can't review this music the way people review movies, where you criticize something and a hundred people get to all laugh about it on their way to the bank. These are human beings. And that kind of Cisco Ebert thumbs up, thumbs down is not the right approach to reviewing this music. And it was that comment from your dad that turned me around. But I've told him this uh, several times, how much that meant to me and to, to understand that perspective. Once that happened, and then, of course, 
as he became more and more of the person he is now, my appreciation just continued to grow, obviously. And uh, I was actually quite happy that he wanted to talk to me and seems to think of me as uh, somebody of some consequence. Uh, I'm not idolatrous in that sense, but I felt honored that he's happy to see me when I walk into the club because I feel uh, that kind of kinship and friendship with him. It was important to me that his continuing wisdom as as the years have developed and pretty much any conversation I have with him, as I don't have to tell you, is just inspiring, you know. Yeah, I am glad every time Neil walks into the club. It's always great to see him. And he's a hell of a writer and a very sweet man. I said to him, to put Ben's record on the worst list, to me, shows what a fan you are of his, because we all know that you could find some terrible records. But to choose an artist that you like and put him on the list, it's a kind of a, a sign that you care about what they're doing. That you care. That's right. It's definitely a sign of caring. Of course. Yeah. And I think from a critical point of view, that may be what was animating that. But again, the idea that you don't necessarily take into consideration, this is somebody's career that's going to be affected by it. And of course, you, you know, ended up writing a song about critics. And Oh, yes. Yes, that's that's true. That's true. My critic song. That's the song that really iced it with the uh, Wyndham Hill, yeah. <laughs> because whereas Neil Tesser didn't like my record, Leonard Feather, who was the jazz critic, didn't like my song about critics. He yeah. took it personally, as as did almost every critic. Sure, Mike Swearin didn't like it, and I, I was frankly surprised because in my head I draw a line between journalists and critics. I think a critic is set up to impose their value systems in a very brief way, thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, And a journalist is there to contextualize what you're hearing and tell you why it's this, why it's that, as opposed to a critic saying, well, why it's not this. This is what I wanted and it didn't fulfill that need. But I guess, you know, I was not sensitive to the fact that these people made their living being critics and I was calling them out. So there it is. Hearing you frame this conversation around how that ongoing tension between criticism and journalism was playing out while you were on the Wyndham Hill label is very interesting to me because as it turns out, while your song critics might have iced the deal with that label, at that same time, it was Wyndham Hill that put you in touch with VH1 suggested you as a guest host for a new show that they were putting together at VH1 called New Visions. And that led to another chapter in your career as a journalist. I talked to our friend Mike Simon, who was your producer of New Visions, and he told me how that all came together. Well, the first show I ever finagled into producing was a show called New Visions. This was back in late 87 at VH1. I'd been there about a year. And it, and it was a new age music show. I, we started getting musicians to host it. And some were really good and some were musicians who, who should be playing and not hosting a TV show. His label, was his label Wyndham Hill for like a minute? Yes. Okay, so it was Wyndham Hill, which at that point was had a lot of new age music artists and they had been, and I guess some other jazz stuff. They told me about him and, you know, this was before you could just Google people, but I stumbled across his NPR show and I go, oh, he's great. You know, he can come on. Oh, he plays music too? This guy's also plays? So fantastic. And he came on. And I guess this was late 87. We so instantly connected. There was just like this 
thing where you meet someone and you feel like you've known them when you clearly have not known them, but I just felt that way with him. And it was this really like magical show and it just it just worked. And I remember going to management at, at VH1 and I convinced them to, I, we need a regular host, you know, we can still guest musician guest, but this guy is absolutely perfect. You know, he knows jazz, he's on a new age label, he knows rock, you know, if we ever get like into that. And um, then they said, great, um, but you know, we can't pay him. I go, well, okay, I don't know if he'll do it if you can't pay him you know so i said well yeah you, you have to you have to pay i said you have to figure out something ben said you know if i do four shows i come and you know stay for a couple of days and do four shows and then find a hotel deal and an airline deal so he was put up we would pay four shows at once and then there was an airline called midwest express who somehow the CEO loved Ben, like everyone I ever ran into in life, they loved Ben. So I'm going, okay, well, can you give him free flights? So we got that. We did a, we brought in a stylist. I remember they got him like a cool purple suit, which which was really good. They got him, in fact, a really cool like jacket. So jackets back then had shoulder pads, like these ridiculous sized shoulder pads, a brown one, and it didn't fit him. So I took it. We had an amazing time. I consider working with your dad one of the absolute highlights of my career. I love your dad. We had just a, we had a grand old time. We had a great small little studio and a really fun crew. And it was just, and no executives bothering. I don't think they even knew what we were doing or when we were doing it. You know, I'm having Sun Ra sit on the floor of a studio with weird yellow lighting. And he's just talking and like, yeah, we just put on Sunday night. It's fun. There was definitely things he did, which he did in song as well. You know, um, always on the borderline of funny, just to know that the funny is there. That's it. Yeah, we had a great time doing that show. And I think he's right. I don't think uh, VH1 even knew we, we were doing the show. The Sun Ra thing was great. I, could, I, I actually booked Sun Ra. He had booked Don Cherry before that or somebody. I said, well, Sun Ra, you know, these astral uh, orchestra and we, we got Sun Ra on there and I, I was interviewing him and he's telling me he's from Venus you know yeah. and I'm, you know we're talking about Venus and so I, and then he starts to play you know we have the performance section so Sun Ra is playing and uh, I hear in my headphones Mike say okay we're going to commercials tell Sun Ra to wrap it up I said I'm not telling Sun Ra to wrap it up nobody's going to tell Sun Ra to wrap it up so he said, well, okay, well, I'm going to commercial. I said, fine, you go to commercial. He went to commercial. He came back out of commercial. Sun Ra was still playing, worked just great, no problem. This is something that's always been the case with jazz. You know, the people who get jazz and who love jazz are, frankly, a particular kind of person. It's not, it's really not for everybody, and it never was. And every time some company or somebody thinks that they can make money with jazz, whether they're a club owner or a promoter, whatever it is, invariably it spins out of control and the money doesn't show up and jazz suffers. Yeah. It was an example of that. It was too bad, but boy, I think we did that show for two or three years and it made history because ever since it doesn't go a few yeah. months when I don't meet somebody who says, man, I grew up on that show. Yeah. I remember when you had Freddie Hubbard on that, whatever that show meant a lot yeah. to jazz people. Nonetheless, your time with Wyndham Hill 
came to an end. <laughs> yes, it did. You had basically been owning your own masters for a while already, but that was the label that contextualized you. You were a free agent. You're out there. And you're not really sure what the next kind of record you're going to make is. And what happens? What happens is I decide to take a chance and go into business with my friend Nobu Yoshinari in Japan and start a record label. Is that what you're talking about? I said, uh, let's start a new label. What I suggested was for him to do whatever he wanted to do. I didn't ask for him to come up with jazz material or any pop material or anything specific. I just wanted him to do what he wanted to do. So that's what I said. I, I think that's when I went to Madison for the first time, around that time. And uh, Ben drove me around and uh, we talked about the name for the label. But then we decided on Go Jazz because it sounded simple enough for people to understand. And at the same time, it has this strong message as a new label, Go Jazz. Ben suggested for me to be one of the producers as, you know, I should be credited as a producer. But I said, no, 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 I, I'm just uh, lucky so-and-so being around and he invited me to uh, some of the recordings in the States, in New York or in, uh, in L.A. I was just watching, you know, sit, sitting in the studio, watching him uh, work the production, talking to musicians. It's all an educational process for me. And at the same time, meeting, he gave me a chance to meet all these great musicians. Everything he says. It's so philosophical, and, and sometimes it's, to me, uh, the, it's the um, Zen uh, philosophy, Ben's Zen. <laughs> Nobu Yoshinari, a great gentleman, and frankly, a man who gave me the opportunity to not only continue to make the records I wanted to make, but to offer the same opportunity to great musicians who I knew who didn't have a chance. And uh, one of them was Bob Malik, one of the greatest tenor players I ever met. And uh, I was able to make records with Bob and Georgie Fame. I mean, Georgie Fame, absolutely the greatest musician. I mean, clearly the greatest singer, but one of the greatest musicians I ever, I ever worked with. Every, everything he did from the first moment he walks into a room, is correct and musical. And yeah, I can't thank Nobu enough. Nobu, and you start a label, and he basically says, make whatever records you want to make. And so now you're out in the world, and you're not anywhere you go. You're not just there for the gig. You're also there potentially because you could sign somebody. You could, be, you could literally be at the end of the earth, and find somebody that you want to work with. And of course, they refer to Perth, Australia as the end of the earth. And that is where you met Georgie Fame. It was a pivotal meeting. I was working in Perth at the Perth Festival. And Ben came in because he was in the same festival the following week. And so our paths crossed. And we were staying in a hotel, the same hotel in Perth, although we hadn't met at this time, and I got a phone call from Ben. 
saying he was in the hotel. He just arrived in Perth and he was going to be, can we meet? So I said, yeah. So downstairs I went and then we had a nice long conversation. And that was the birth of his concept of the Go Jazz or my involvement in the Go Jazz recordings, really. He said he'd like to do an album if I'd like to do it. I said, yeah. I said, what kind of album? He said, anything you like. <laughs> it's the perfect reply, really. And that was the beginning of the date we did the Cool Cat Blues album, which was obviously very well received around the world. And that was the, the start of a close and continuing relationship with Ben. I heard of Ben first from our mutual friend, Glenn Johns. Uh, when Glenn was producing or engineering and sometimes producing some of my earlier recordings, in fact, he did my very first recording with my own band in London, Glenn said to me, like, had, you ever, had I ever heard of Ben? And I hadn't at that time. And so he introduced me to Ben's music, basically. So I'm glad that the old man is catching me up. I was 80 in June. You know, it's been a very important item in my life, especially since we started recording together uh, and the trips we had to Japan and and all the gigs we did around America. It was, so it's been a great privilege to know him. And also, I just wanted to say, I haven't made this public knowledge at all yet. I haven't even told my sons. But as and when I kick the bucket, I want somebody to recite the lyrics to Don't Cry For No Hipster at my funeral. <laughs> I think it's one of the greatest poems ever written. Yeah. Well, that is high praise, man. That is a high, high honor to hear Georgie Fame say that my song, Don't Cry For No Hipster, meant that much to him. And of course, he's the perfect, he's the perfect hipster. Georgie Fame is, is it, it's hard to put into words because, you know, we talk about authentic, what it is to be authentic. And these days, maybe it doesn't mean as much as it used to. It used to be a huge thing to find the authentic self. Georgie Fame is the most authentic self I've ever run into. He is 100% himself. He's not just who he is, but he's so good at it hmm. that he makes you want to find yourself. Yes. He make, you know, he want, makes you want to be that good about being yourself. I have the highest regard for Georgie Fame. I'm very, I'm very flattered that he said that. Thank you. Thank you. Georgie Fame is indeed the ultimate hipster. And you wrote your song, Don't Cry for No Hipster, 10 or so years ago, thinking not only about Georgie, but some of your other friends, Tommy LaPuma, I think probably most of all. You sang it at the memorial of your late friend Peter Straub last year, and he was another great hipster. As it turns out, People thought of you as a hipster all along the way as well. I talked to Janice Siegel about her early impressions of you, and that's how she referred to you. My first recollection of Ben was through his music, was through his writing. He did this cool lyric to Charlie Parker's Moose the Mooch, and I loved it so much. So that was my first awareness, I think, uh, of Ben. He was had the hipster's demeanor going on. Thanks. A lot of humor and, and just fun. Anyway, 
you went to Perth, Australia, and you met Georgie Fame, and you signed him and made a handful of records with him, and you made a, f- a few fill-up church records, and you found characters from all over the world. Yes. And you used your position as a label owner to make a record that probably would never have gotten made if you hadn't been the label. It's your Jewish record, Life's a Lesson, a record of Hebrew liturgical music performed by Jewish jazz musicians. And really, that that was the project that sort of launched you on your Jewish journey that culminated with the book, There Was a Fire, that you wrote. But my memory of those sessions, because I attended quite a few of them, was watching you and the great Gil Goldstein as <laughs> as he orchestrated and arranged these tunes. <laughs> and I had a conversation with Gil Goldstein, Ben, that you got to hear. <laughs> Did you? I was always aware of Ben as I was coming up in college at Berkeley. I heard his name. I knew he was super versatile, that he was a jazz guy and a rock guy. And he did kind of everything. And he was a smart guy. I knew all those things about him. And I just kind of watched him from a distance. The first thing that I lined up with him on was Michael Frank's record, Dragonfly Summer. When that happened, that confluence came together, I said, I've arrived. That was my arrival in music. I was so honored to be on a record that he produced, and I produced a couple tracks. And then that he called me to arrange the things on Life's a Lesson. He'd encouraged me to do some of my favorite arrangements that I've ever done, like the Kol Nidra with Lou Soloff and Liebman and Mike Richmond. I mean, that was just something. Getting a little teary. You're like Barbara Walters. You make people cry. <laughs> I'm like her in a lot of ways that you don't even know, Gil. Oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> but all right. So, all right. I got through that little thing, Cole Nidra. And then, you know, I have to say his interviews, I mean, forget about it. Only matched by Leo. <laughs> You too. Bring it out of the people. You can make them cry. I think that's a good quality. There needs to be more crying in jazz. Amen. There needs to be more crying in jazz. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Gil Goldstein. There he was. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, what a character. Man, this is wonderful. Uh, you know, we're going on and on here. I bet half the people who started with us are gone now, but I don't care. I don't care either. Maybe in the intro, I'll say this one is maybe not for everyone, but it has to be done here. Because this had to be yeah, done it, once. Yeah, it has to be done once. You're turning 80 and it's today and that's what we're doing. You want to hear a few more voices? Oh, I would love to. This is just a thrill, Leo. I can't tell you what this is like. I'm glad to hear it. Okay, I enter the scene at a certain point, and I get involved. I get to produce these records, and I got to go out on the road with you every year, and we started doing, you know, I don't know, 60 dates a year or something. We'd go to Europe for two months at a time, and 
after a while, it was established that we would take our quartet. We would be generally Bill Peterson playing bass and Bob Rockwell on saxophone. So here's what Bob Rockwell has to Bob say. Bob Rockwell, about ladies you. and gentlemen. Okay, okay. First of all, he's one of the best band leaders I've worked with. He treats you fucking fair as a sideman. You know, I mean, who else would bring you sushi to your motel room before the gig? All right. Then another thing I want to say is he's one of the most intense, goal-oriented people in my life, you know? I mean, really, man, and a cat who follows through. I mean, he's inspirational. If he's got an idea, he's going to do it, and he'll go all the way, man. He gives 100%. Okay, that's kind of that. And then I think he is he's just such an original Dude, man. And, you know, you hear him play piano. He's a bebopper. And I'll tell you, you know, man, most of the time we'd be playing those gigs. And Leo, we played several hundred, I think. Well, he's playing bebop. He don't repeat himself. You know, I just respect this cat. I love this cat, man. I mean, he's given so much to me. You know, like, I had some down times, man. You know, he was cool with it. All that stuff with him. And just to hang out with him on the road. Oh, here's one of my favorite things, man. You be in a bad situation in an airport or someplace where it's just like everything's crashing, right? My favorite sentence is, he turns around to me and says, Bob, all of our very best efforts got us here. <laughs> is that enough? Because I go on and on, man. You know what your dad means to me, man? You know, and, and as a friend, you know, you know, and like, and, and you know, and I had to fade him out because he, he, there was no stopping him. There was no stopping <laughs> yeah. Bob. Well, Bob is a bebopper, as Phil Woods said, down to his socks. One of the deepest roadmen we've ever met. And he made it a point to inculcate you in the road ethic. And he took it upon himself as uh, an obligation to make sure you knew what was expected of a sideman on the road, how to comport yourself. And he did it out of love, but he didn't spare any harsh words. He, he told you in no uncertain terms uh, what was expected of a jazz musician. And that's how much respect he has yes. for a jazz musician. And he would find it necessary to pass that on. And at the same time, the greats have a way of making you feel that it's okay to be you. You know, there may be some some specifics that they want, but in general, my takeaway was always it's okay to be you, you know, and you spend so much time all over the world working with these great cats, you know, and and yet you bring the same expectation and dynamic and energy, whether or not you're playing with young musicians that you meet in Madison or cats on the road. And that's why I wanted to talk to our friend Luca Patnaud about what it's like to play with you, because, you know, he was my friend in college and we played music together and you've continued to play with him in Madison over the years. And so I thought, well, what is it like for him to work with you, you know? And so he, and he, I liked what he said. I would say one of the best aspects of being able to play with him is that he always wants you to be you. He's got you there on the gig because of, of who you are and what you do. He's not kind of one of those band leaders who's like trying, who's got some sort of preconceived idea and wants you to fit into this thing 
it's like, no, nah, man, I, I brought you to be you. So you go ahead and uh, and get down and do your thing. And that type of freedom is fantastic because that's really what it's all about. That is actually what gives you the ability to have a kind of more clear channel so that when ideas are coming through, you can just kind of go where you want to go rather than have that sort of like um, little uh, voice in the back of your head, like thinking, ah, oh, that's not hip. That's not the thing you're, you know, you should be doing this thing, that thing or whatever. It's when you have the freedom, when you are, are sort of encouraged to be in that free space, there's nothing like it. That's really where the high vibrating stuff happens. And you know, what's really also beautiful from my point of view is that I'm always getting kind of another reason or more ways to put it, how this music and what we're doing up there, why is it relevant? You know, you'll get it from point of view of like um, of a poet, Garcia Lorca, and talking about being on the edge of the well and the, and the Duende and this kind of thing, or Sisyphus rolling that rock up the hill, you know, and it's picture him happy. And it's like, it's, it, you know, it's like, okay, now we're going all the way back to ancient Greece or back to the caveman dance. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, and this, guess what? This thing that we're doing right here, it's been the same all the way. Little details are different, but the same vibe, the same reason, you know, it's, it's getting down to the uh, essence of things and getting in alignment with that. And that brings us back to kind of reminding us who we are, you know, that's been kind of like the the crux. And I haven't gotten that really from from anybody else. And it's just incredibly unique. You know, it, it, musicians tend to say the music doesn't belong to anybody. It passes through us all. You know, Train said that. In my conversation with Miles, he said, oh, man, you know, those guys, he was referring to Bird and Dizzy. Man, they, they, they really turned me around. And I said to him, well, how did they do it? Yeah. And he said, they, they let me know it was okay to be who I was, to be myself. So it's it's the quintessential message, man. Yes. It really is, and it's passed down. And until you get it, you don't you don't get it. <laughs> and Luca's got it, man. Luca is himself. He can't help it. But yeah, we are part. We are connected. We go back, man. This yeah. what we're doing here. Yeah. What's so righteous about jazz in the midst? I mean, I started by saying, you know, the panic is on yes. because that's how I'm looking at the world today. The panic is definitely on. But we have survived ice ages and we have survived meteor strikes and we have survived a lot of stuff. The panic is not new. Nah. Uh, and and what's important is, I guess, to echo what Luca said. You know, we've been doing this a long time. The details are different. Yeah. And you've written a lot of songs. You've written about it in a lot of ways about how long this revolution has been going on, much longer than we've been alive. And you've written a lot of songs that contextualize your own music in different ways. Like Luca said, you made a record dedicated to the poet Federico Garcia Lorca. You talked about the commonalities between the blues and Conte Hondo, talked about what the Spanish idea of the duende is, all that. You made a record dedicated to existentialist philosophers like Albert Camus, and, and your song Picture I'm Happy talks about Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, like Lucas said. But your idea of cave dancing, of gathering in caves, as, as the jazz club as the kind of inevitable extension of cave people gathering together to play music, that's a very seductive idea, and it was one that influenced our friend Jorge Drexler. I've been always inspired by Ben's relationship between the world of reason and the world of groove, how you can match together reasoning and grooving. 
and how you connect the rhythm with the anthropologist side of the of the music. In particular, I made a whole record called Bailar en la Cueva, Cave Dancing, that we recorded in Colombia. The whole idea of the record is based in a song of Ben's when, when he talks about the, the birth of groove and the history of humankind through the groove. I found it so inspiring that that, that idea originated a whole record for me. We've been working together a lot. I had the enormous privilege of playing with him many, many concerts in the States. We recorded together in Spain. We played together in many, many places. We wrote songs together. Se va, se va, se fue. We recorded most Allison's songs in, in my record, Amar la Trama. Every time I needed some inspiration, I would listen to Ben's spoken word over rhythm and find whatever I was looking for there already. Jorge Drexler, my man. Well, you know, I think Jorge is one of the greatest songwriters ever. In my mind, I can still see doing the cave dance song at the Cafe Central in Madrid and looking over and down the steps into the back room, Jorge's sitting on those steps, two feet from your bass drum, staring at yeah. me. I remember that. You know, one of the great takeaways, I think, of the Jorge interactions is that it's not that he's not aware of jazz on some level. You know, I mean, he's aware of it in the same way that he's aware of the Goldberg variations and tango and all kinds of things. It's just part of the language and, and Paul McCartney. It's part of the language of music for him. But he's not a jazz guy. And yet right. he saw something that you were doing and recognized its kind of universality yes. and the value of it. That And he recognized what part of it would apply to what he's doing, you know. Um, in fact, he became a jazz guy in some ways by doing that, by learning how to integrate some of what you do into his world. Yeah, I'm sure Jorge got to experience that playing with you and me. I mean, that's what you and me have. We have something together that we have fortunately never picked apart because there's something going on there that's very organic and very powerful. And people recognize it from all walks of the musical life. That is the deal. That's the real deal, whatever that thing is. Ben, we're coming to the end of our journey here today, and uh, I've saved for my kind of closing number to you a ballad. It's always nice to close with a tearjerker and your favorite chick singer, Joy Dragland, who <laughs> I met in college. We made records together as the band Joy and the Boy. She sang with you. We went on tour with her in Europe and in Japan. She is in many ways responsible for me and Amanda being together. She has basically become a member of the family. She's prepared something for you.
Joy Draglin, my favorite chick singer. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Was she playing piano too? I think she's been getting into playing piano, yeah. She is actually, as we speak, she is auditioning for The Voice in Norway. <laughs> she's got oh, a, The Voice? She got a call oh. back to be on The Voice in Norway. Well, Leo, I, I, I don't know what to say. This has really been a fantastic experience. And I have to admit that when I was like eight years old, uh, watching This Is Your Life on television, <laughs> I was going to, I was wondering, well, when they do me, what would it be? I have to tell you, man, I I feel so worthy. That's what Mose Allison said to me once. Made me feel so worthy. Well, I think you are worthy. I love you. I'm sad that I'm not with you today to celebrate your birthday in person. And so I'm glad that I was able to put something together in tribute for you today. And actually, we're not even done because there are a handful of birthday greetings and messages from friends, various friends that I want you to hear. And I'll just let them roll here at the end of the episode. So here are your birthday greetings. I love you, Ben. Talk to you soon. Okay. I love you, man. I love you. From Ralph Simon. Hey, Ben, if Merv Shiner at 102 years old, Ray Anthony at 101 years old, and Roy Haynes at 98 years old are still playing live jazz, bringing their creative cool to adoring audiences. Here you are at three score years and 20, revving your cosmic giggle, tickling them ivories, and constantly bringing your BBA cool to all in your midst. So keep on keeping on so you can emulate the trio above. Hey Ben, don't count the candles, count the cumulative mature joy and creative camaraderie. And then it's a one, two, three, and HBD Ben. From JJ Telesforo. Hi, Ben. How are you? I hope everything goes well. So today is uh, an important day for you, for your family, for me, and for all the wonderful tribe of musicians and music fans from all over the world. Today, I have the desire to thank you, but not for the incredible adventures we have shared since 1988 when you performed with your band in my TV show, Doc, you remember? And I don't want to thank you for the countless conversations about music and life, the recording projects, the concerts around the world with your Go Jazz All Stars. And I don't want to thank you for the unforgettable moments lived with uh, uh, John Hendricks, uh, Clark Terry, Bob Berg, Tommy Lee Puma, Phil Woods, uh, and Clyde Stubblefield. And neither for the endless night laughs with intellectuals like Schipani and Rodolfo Lagana. I want to thank you for the future, man, for the future things that I'm sure you will do and maybe we will do together soon I hope because from you I learned to believe in dreams to live sometimes to survive in the beauty of art and music with one foot on the ground and one dancing in the air you are a prodigious blend of professional rigor filtered by joy and a deep sense of humor so a more unique than rare human being and when I'll be 80 if I get there, now I know perfectly uh, what I want to become. I want to be a Ben Sidron. <laughs> okay, sorry, I was almost forgetting the most important thing. 
Happy birthday from the deep of my heart, Ben. I love you and I miss you so much. Your brother, JJ. Ciao. This is a message for the wonderful and great and generous Ben Sidrin for his birthday from Bill McHenry. I said it before, but now it's in public. Thank you so much for not only letting me be a member of your group, but allowing me the same setting and, and, and gracious setting that, that you already provided in the past for people like Blue Mitchell and Woody Shaw. They gave me these incredible examples of how well that could be done and letting me try to live up to that every night in whatever way is just naturally possible and in front of me with what you and the band provides. And it's a little different every night and it's, and it's real and in the moment and every note counts and every beat counts. And I feel it when that happens. And what a joy. That is my favorite kind of way to play. And I owe you so much for that. And it's such a pleasure and a privilege. And, uh, and aside from that, just the time spending with you and talking with you, your company is so rich and your family is so wonderful. It's been a pleasure and a joy knowing you. And, um, you know, I don't wish this on everybody at your age, but I hope you live for a lot more years, <laughs> you know, and I hope it's in happy health and vitality and we get to share more of this, the, the beautiful part of the earth together because you really highlight that with how you are and the music you make. So thank you. Happy birthday. Keep it going. Love to the family. And uh, sorry if it's too long, Leo. <laughs> From Rick Margitza. <laughs> Hey Ben, hope you're having a good day. Wishing you a healthy and happy 80th. Hope to see you soon. From Alexis Quadrado. It's such a joy and a privilege and a wonderful experience to be with you. Anytime we hang out, we play. Every time I learn so much and I just love you. It's so fucking great to be your friend and to be around you. 80 is the new 30, 40, 50, whatever. Your energy and your... Um, livelihood and your enthusiasm and your intellect and everything that goes along with you is something that some of us have had the privilege of experiencing. So, man, thank you for being you. And I am so grateful to be your friend. And I love you. Uncle Ben, this is Paul Peterson wishing you the happiest 80th birthday. We love you. We thank you for all you've done for the Peterson family, and we wish you many more healthy birthdays ahead. We can't wait to see you soon and play with you again. Have a great day surrounded by people who love you. From Pierre Darmont. 
Hello, Mr. Sidron. I sent you this message from Paris. 80. 80, what a great number. You are one of the greats, Mr. Ben Sidron. And I measure my luck to have met you 20 years ago now. You are both a great artist, a faithful friend, and I can say, like my big American brother. Jody, Leo, Amanda, Sol are very lucky to have you by their side. So from, so from Paris, I wish you again a very, very, very happy birthday. A bientôt, Monsieur Ben Sidron. See you in Paris. Ciao, ciao. And from James Farber. Dear Ben, James here. What can I say about a cat who plays, sings, composes, produces, writes, interviews, and hosts, all while venturing deep into the hipposphere, the diposphere, and the way gonosphere? You are the ultimate Swiss army knife and each of your tools is razor sharp. It has been my king pleasure to know you since my college days in Madison and to collaborate with you over the many years. The first record I recorded for you was Bop City in 1983. I remember you calling me after listening to the rough mixes which were quickly dashed off at the end of the session and said, James, these sound like real jazz mixes to me. What else would we do to them? And with that, Following your instincts, as you have always done, you issued the Rups. I thank you for connecting me to so many supreme masters of our universe, including John Hendricks, Mose Allison, Georgie Fame, and Al Schmidt, to name but a few. Of course, your greatest production is Leo, and I consider myself lucky to also count him as my friend. With love and respect, happy 80th birthday, my man. And in conclusion... What else is on this reel? This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.